Welcome to the EMS Handout, your source for all things EMS. And now, let's welcome to the show your hosts, Bradley Dean, Eric McCullough, and David Blevins. Hello, and welcome back to another week of the EMS Handoff Podcast. I'm David, and along with my co-host, Bradley Dean, we are your source for all things EMS. And if you're watching us on YouTube today, you notice I'm inside, actually sitting at about 50 degrees in our area, and yet Bradley Dean is out in the sunshine absorbing some of that good old vitamin D. And uh, you see the tree, either that or he's got a really, really good interactive background. I'm not sure which one it is. So let's just find out for sure. Bradley Dean, are you inside, outside, uh, good AI or what? No, I'm actually uh, outside. It's beautiful here. Um, I'm actually right outside of uh, Lexington Fire Station 3 in Lexington, North Carolina. So you may hear the guys go out in the background. Well, you know, we we try to get really interactive and in making sure we hand off everything exactly well. So that would be perfect for this podcast. But uh, another week is in the books. And uh, how are things treating you over in North Carolina? I mean, it, it's it's great. Um, been busy, been working a few shifts this uh, this week. Uh, I'm actually going back in later tonight to to do some work. Uh, but over the next couple of weeks, I'll be on the road. So we may stop in a couple of different stations somewhere and maybe do a couple of outtakes. So we'll be at the North Carolina EMS Expo, which will, uh, so you guys are actually hearing this after uh, that expo, but we're going to be there uh, doing some some recording and some social media pushes as well. It's their 50th anniversary. Uh, so we're going to be there. Excellent. Well, we've got another great guest. And before we introduce him, let's uh, thank our podcast partner, the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. While we are your source for all things EMS and the podcast first, Jim's has been an industry leader for many years. So make sure and go by and check out our fellow podcast hosts uh, on the Jim's podcast. You can go to gems.com, find out everything that's going on in EMS. And they've been a great partner since we rebooted our EMS handoff podcast and uh we just want to thank and, and reach out to them so bradley dean another great host it's an interesting topic uh i i had uh, an experience on this when uh, i first joined the fire department uh you see this individual in a, a blue flight suit he wore around and uh it's like oh hey you're here i gotta do good stuff now so introduce our guests and let's get started so today we're uh joined by Dr. Mel. Uh, he's received his medical degree from the University of Illinois at Chicago, uh, the College of Medicine at Rockford. Uh, and prior to that, he received a Master of Public Health degree emphasizing environmental occupational health from the University of Illinois at Chicago uh, School of Public Health. He's been a uh, emergency medicine physician. He's been an EMS medical director. Uh, and there was this one day, one of our crews came back in and said, hey, uh, do you know who this, this guy is we met on the highway? Uh, his his name is Howie Mel. Uh, says he's an ER physician. I said, you probably should have listened to whatever he was going to tell you. So, Dr. Mel, thank you for joining us. I'll let you kind of uh, introduce yourself real quick. Well, no problem. Yeah, my name is Howie Mel. I am a former firefighter paramedic. Um, 
And I kept showing up and they kept giving me more responsibilities. I'm not really sure what I want to be when I grow up, but I am an emergency physician. I'm uh, board certified in EMS. I'm board certified in emergency medicine. Um, I live in North Carolina, but I actually work in the Midwest. Um, and uh, I don't know. Uh, this is this is actually one of my, my uh, favorite topics to discuss because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings um, about what's done in EMS, and and I think people don't always really understand. I don't think the public really understands uh, the difference and the the responsibilities between uh, physicians and uh, EMS providers on a scene. Uh, but one other thing too, I, I appreciate you be, my being on the Rebooted podcast, and I, I may be joining you guys in the podcasting world. I'm on the editorial board for International Trauma Life Support, and we are going to be uh, launching. Um, uh, our own version of our uh, podcast in order to uh, get out new and um, advancing information uh, in between our editions. Um, so keep your eyes peeled for that. It's uh, on the horizon, but no set dates yet. So uh, we'll definitely be letting you know when that comes about. Well, you heard it here first. I just need to put that out there. So any royalties uh, here in uh, from from now on, uh, a portion come to the EMS handoff. For that talk, you guys, you guys can have all of the uh, you guys can have all the salary I make from that, which would be zero dollars and zero cents. You, you got to make this like even even uh, more interesting. Like you know, I we they've come to us with this massive uh, salary that somebody else is getting, and uh, so you can have a portion of that whenever it comes about. So, <laughs> Dr. Mel, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, the the one example that I was putting there, as I become a paramedic, uh, I was in the field in the fire department I was working with, and next thing you know, I look up, and there's our physician medical director. I, I'd known him for quite a while, but it's the first time I ever saw him on patient care. I'm sitting there like, am I doing the right thing or not? And then the second ex- uh, experience I remember this. My wife does to this day, uh, a car wreck in front of us, get out and there's already a person in the car and I start to tell him what's going on. He's like, yeah, I'm a trauma surgeon at our uh, trauma center down the road. I'm like, well, what do you want me to do, doc? So uh, let I'll let you go ahead and kick this off. So physicians on scene, what, what well, I think you expect? I, I think there's two things that we need to talk about if we're going to talk physicians on scene, because I think there's a difference between the interactions on scene and the interactions when we're doing interfacility transports, because I think they're they're both areas where, you know, hey, you guys are the EMS handoff. And I mean, there's a handoff here, and I think it gets mismanaged a lot. Um, the, the first, though, let's look at, at an EMS provider. Or let's look at, at, at on the scene, right? You, you call 911, and as you point out, you get there, and somebody says, hey, I'm a doctor. Now what? Um, and, and it's an area that's really challenging, I think, for a lot of, of EMS providers. And I think it, it can be an area that's fraught with some liabilities. It, it's an area that's fraught with a lot of misunderstanding. Um, I, I do a fair amount of expert witness work uh, for defense uh, on EMS. And uh, I've actually had two uh, cases that have boiled down to this very question. Um, so it's 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 not an uncommon area for, shall I say, tension. Um, and and so I think that the the first thing that people need to understand is is that in every state there is an EMS Act, and what the EMS Act essentially allows is it allows a paramedic or EMT 
to practice medicine without a license within a limited scope. And if that's the case, then what does it say about a physician who happens to be on EMS's scene? And unfortunately, the legislatures are very often silent about this. And so what you're left with, if you're a paramedic or an EMT and somebody comes up and they say, I'm a doctor, is, okay, what now? And this is a, this is a little bit challenging because I think there is naturally an expectation from the public that paramedics and EMTs are going to defer to the doctor. And I think if, if the case is something where somebody's really ill or it's really life-threatening, uh, I think there's even a, a, there can be a natural, oh, good, somebody more experienced is here. But that's very, very rarely the case. Because what I can tell you as a physician is anything that I've ever done on a scene, and, and I've been on plenty of scenes, but anything I've ever done on a scene is more because I used to be a paramedic than because I was a physician. Um, when it really boils down to if I was going to somehow do a procedure on the scene, yeah, maybe my hands are a little bit more experienced. Um, but if you look at things, it's not always the case to work well. Let me give you a story. I used to be a medical director in North Carolina, and I was in the office, and we had a very bad trauma com call come in. I'm not going to give you a whole lot of details because it's a, it's a well-known case, uh, but it did involve firearms and somebody getting shot. And I went out to the scene because I was in the office, and I wasn't real far away, um, and, and went out with, with, the, uh, with, our, with our lead paramedic, and um, got there, and it was decided that we had to intubate this patient. And to be honest, my crews didn't carry the drugs I usually use to intubate. I, I mean, I made it work, don't get me wrong, and I got the patient intubated, um, but it was more uncomfortable for me than I'd really expected because I kind of am a ketamine, um, fentanyl, rock uronium kind of guy, and, and my trucks didn't have ket at the time. Um, we got it for them, but, but they didn't have Ked at the time. And so here I am doing this intubation. So I, I think that we have to unpack this whole thing a little bit and, and explain both to paramedics and, and to any physicians who may be listening, um, really what this interaction is, because it's, it's not what people think. How do you guys handle it when you get a seat, when you get a doc on the scene? Like, I mean, yeah, your medical director is one thing, but what what happens? You pull up, and somebody says, "Yeah, I'm a I'm a doctor," I, I, and and they're doing patient care or whatever. Well, I, I think you bring up a couple with that one of the last statements you made right there. Make a very good and valid point because the question is, what if your physician medical director is there versus a physician? Um, because there's a lot to that. A physician medical director for that agency may be willing to ride in, and therefore they they kind of take. That's their scope that they that we're working under, their protocols that we're working under. But to give you an example, because I've I've had a very sim similar situation to that. Um, the in the the first question that I had, especially along the lines of questioning, is you know I found where their expertise is, and this individual, uh, and I was actually in an aircraft at that point in time. Um, uh, a, a just a commercial airliner 
And uh, he was a family physician and wasn't prepared to handle emergency situations. And it was evident. So I just said, hey, you know, if if you, you know, I'll refer to you if there's anything specific. But I actually took over and managed that patient until we got on the ground. Um, and I think you utilize them how it is that you can, you can because the question then gets into, well, if they're just a physician on scene, um, and I, I'm using that term just there because they don't have an association with your uh, service, you have to look at what your protocols say, or, or is that physician going to stay along with you? So if they give you orders that are uh, uh, contrary to your either online or offline medical direction, are there any laws to follow that? And I, I, I would venture to say not unless they're going to go on with you. So Bradley, what do you think about that? So I think there are several things that we have to do as, as a pre-hospital provider. You know, if, if someone you know, shows up on scene, identifies themselves, says, hey, I'm a physician, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help. You know, I think we should make a reasonable effort to establish the identity and the credentials of that individual. And, you know, a, a good physician uh, is probably going to ask, you know, hey, you know, what what do you need versus trying to step in and, and take over unless they see things going you know, completely awry. Um, and, you know, make sure that they understand that, hey, you know, if you're going to help, you're also helping resume, you know, assume responsibility for this patient. And, you know, if, if it's that critical, you know, we're going to ask you to to accompany us to the hospital. And, you know, if they've got time or they want to, you know, become part of that, they're probably going to step in and say, yes, this is who I am. Here's my credentials. And I am willing to step in and help you. Uh, some places may require that you contact medical control online or offline uh, for that, that to be able to, to happen as well. So I think you've got to look at your, your local agency and your local requirements, whether it's state or local jurisdiction, you know, when a physician, you know, arrives on scene. Many, many of those that I, I have experienced on, on the scene will quickly say, well, if you start to give orders, you're riding with me. And they're like, just tell me what you need to do to help. And, and they've got to step back. So, so it's, it's funny you mentioned airplanes because when I was a paramedic, I was presenting a paper in South Africa. And so, and, I'm, and this is long before I was married. I had a study, I had a young lady who was my study partner. She's now actually an anesthesiologist, but bygones. And we're flying to Johannesburg out of Miami, and we're over the middle of the ocean. We've been, we've been, we've been flying for four hours at this point. And they come over and they say, "Is anyone a doctor? Is there a medic personnel on the flight?" And I'm ignoring it because I'm a medic. <laughs> yeah, they said doctor. Ah. That's exactly what I did. Oh. Call, well, call, call comes over again. I'm ignoring it. Finally, my, my partner's not She's like, no one's answering. You need to tell them. So I'm like, all right, fine. So I, I ring my bell. And I start to walk up. And this is 747 that we're on. And I don't know if you've ever been in one, but there's two aisles. So I start walking up one aisle. And there's a guy walking up the other aisle next to me. And I looked at him. I said, are you? He looks at me. And I look at him. I'm like, are you a doctor? He says, yeah, I'm an O. Uh, and I said, oh, um, great. Because I'm a paramedic. So this is you. He goes, uh-uh, I'm an OB. So unless they're giving birth. This is you. Now, unfortunately, we got up there and it was a gentleman had died and it was obvious there was, I mean, he was cold and he was gray. And um, I looked at the doc. I'm like, I'd call this. I don't think we need to start. And the doc looks, yeah, dead is dead. And I'm like, okay, great. And we both looked at the flight then we're like, eh. and she goes, well, do we need to turn around? And and he said, uh, well, how long, how long before we get on the ground if we turn around? And she says, 
uh, four hours. And he says, and if we keep going, she goes, we're going to land in the Maldives in five hours. He goes, you know, just as dead in another hour. <laughs> I'm like, he's like, there's no way we were going to do anything. Uh, but unfortunately for him, he was the position. They actually made him get off in the Maldives and stay with the body because somebody had to, like there was customs issues and all this other crap. And I went back to my seat. And um, <laughs> so, so goody on him. Um, I think you're right. I think one of the keys, though, is to identify who the pay, who the physician is, because it's interesting. I've encountered on the scene. I've encountered chiropractors. I've encountered um, nurses who uh, will claim to be a doctor, and then when you push them a little bit, they'll say they're a nurse. I'm not even talking about the doctor of nursing practice and getting into that whole kettle of fish. I'm talking about somebody who intentionally misrepresents themselves. Um, I've had that happen. Um, granted 30 years ago, but I've had it happen. Uh, and, and I've certainly had doctors who um, may have just no clue uh, in, in what they're doing. I will tell you, in my opinion, an emergency physician or an EMS physician isn't going to tell you they're a doctor. They're going to start off by saying, hey, guys, I'm an emergency room doc down the street. Or, hey, you know, I, I very recently had a crash happen and it was a bad crash on the highway. We were in, we were in rural Tennessee, and it was just a, I mean, it was a doozy. And I got literally, I didn't see the crash happen, but the squad, the rescue, and the ambo pulled around me. Uh, I was maybe four cars back, and so I just you know gave the car to my wife, and I just walked over and I said, "Hey guys, um, I'm an EMS medical director. I'm I'm an ER doc. Is there anything you need?" And they said. Doc, if you want to come over here and verify this guy's dead or than dead. And I'm like, nope, I'm not licensed in this state, so I can't lend anything to it. Doesn't sound like you guys need me. They said, now the trucker is uninjured and the passenger in the, in the vehicle uh, is deceased. And I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> he turned around, went back, never even gave him my name. But I think, you know, you can tell a lot about how somebody approaches you guys. Um I had another case when I was a resident, we got on the scene of a crash and I actually saw the crash happen and it was bad. Um, volunteer EMS and volunteer fire get there and this guy's pinned in. He, the, the dash is completely collapsed. His feet are pinned one foot was pinned underneath the, uh, the dashboard. Um, and as I'm getting underneath and I'm getting, looking at the pedals, I'm talking to this guy, the EMS shows up and I said, Hey, uh, my name's Harry Mel. I'm one of the residents down the, down the, uh, you know, down in, in Rochester and, and, uh, uh, do you guys need a hand? And they're like, um, and I said, this guy's pinned in pretty good. You're going to need to roll the dash, um, and, and get him out. And his legs are pinned in, but I'm worried about chest trauma. His breathing sounds pretty ragged. And they're looking at me and goes, well, well, can you stay? I'm like, yeah. Can you get the helicopter from Mayo? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, great. And they're like, do you know about like the extrication stuff? Cause the crew that's coming doesn't, I'm like, yeah, I've done that once or twice. So sure, I'm happy to help, but I, it's a limit to what I'm going to do. Um, I think, though, Brad, you mentioned state laws, and that's the key to it. But I think there's a little bit of a misnomer in what most paramedics believe, and that is this idea of a physician who is willing to give you orders and has to come into the uh, emergency department with you then. Because it, that's a state-by-state state and even a local-by-local local jurisdictional thing. Um, when I was a medical director in Ohio, now in Ohio, we don't have a statewide medical. We have a statewide 
recommended protocol, but each jurisdiction gets to make their own protocol. Uh, my guys, my protocol was always no thank you. If you're a doctor on the scene, um, literally no thank you. Uh, we are, we can't interfere with you um, providing medical care, but we don't have to lend you material assistance and we don't have to lend you our ambulance and we don't have to lend you any of our toys. So you have a doctor's like, well, I insist on taking care of this patient. That's great. Patient can sign a refusal and I will leave the patient in your care doc and you can transport them to the hospital or treat them here on the scene to your, to your heart's content. But there's absolutely nothing that requires me as a paramedic or me as a medical director to give you the drugs in my ambulance, to give you the monitor, you know, to give you the electrodes, to give you all the things that you need to provide care. If you happen to have all those things in your handy-dandy station wagon and the patient wants to go with you as opposed to with us, that's fine. You have a license to practice medicine in this state. That's the choice the patient's making. God bless. Uh, we'll, if you pull over somewhere down the road and call us back, we'll be happy to come and take the patient from you. Um, but there really rarely is there a law that says any doctor who's willing to ride in with you suddenly has the ability to, to issue yours. There may be something to that effect when you dig into your protocols, but this is an area I would encourage everyone who's listening to this, look at your protocol and what it actually says. Because I'll give you a classic example. The state of Pennsylvania has a fantastic statewide protocol on this because the statewide protocol on this requires the physician to identify themselves as a physician and provide credentials. And then the paramedic is obligated to inform the physician that what they, the paramedic, do is regulated by an EMS medical command physician. And if they have been given credentials, they are mandated to call online EMS, uh, the, the EMS medical command. The EMS medical command then by protocol can either has a discussion with this physician and can either blow them off and basically say, you know, thanks for your advice and thanks for what you want to have happen. We're not doing it. They can allow the physician, uh, you know, so basically they say you're an observer. We're not, we're not listening to you. They can allow the physician to help on a limited basis, or they can allow the physician to transport in. And then there's a whole series of, rules as far as what happens if the uh, physician wants to do a procedure or want or asks the paramedics to do something beyond uh, the scope of their practice. And the reason it's fantastic is that it's very specific, that if the, pay, if the physician doesn't approach this in a specific way, that is, they don't say, I am a physician and I want, and here's my credentials, you get to ignore them. So if everyone in there in the area is talking about them like they're a doctor, even calling them doctor, but they don't make the specific request in the specific manner, you get to blow them off. And the reason for this is actually it's a subtle brilliance because any EMS physician and most ER docs who take medical command calls know this protocol. So even me, I'm not licensed in the state of Pennsylvania, but I'm driving through Pennsylvania and I really feel the need to exert myself. I would be like, hi, my name is Howie Mel. I'm an emergency physician. Here is my, here are my credentials because I always carry one of my hospital IDs in my wallet. Here's my credentials. 
I would like to assist you. Can you please call your medical command? Well, what, what are they going to know right away? They're going to know that I know their protocols. They're going to know that I work somehow or at least have working knowledge of their system, right? Because they've got this exacting thing that has to be said and done. And, and, and here the physician does it. So please be sure that you know what your local protocol is, because it's usually not somebody says, I'm a doctor, even somebody says, I'm a doctor and provides you credentials, and then says, I want to come in with you uh, that you turn over care. Because I'll tell you what, chiropractors will identify themselves as doctors, and I'm not too sure that we want them transported, even if they agree to go in with the patient. I'm not sure. But I'll also tell you that, you know, one of the most annoying things I deal with as a physician is credentialing. Um, when every two years I've got to, at every hospital I work at, I've got to provide them with copies of my license, copies of my continuing education, uh, copies from my malpractice insurer that I haven't been sued um, or that I don't have ongoing lawsuits, copies from the courts, like all this stuff, right, to prove that even though they did all this two years ago, and even though I've worked there for the two years since I got credentialed, with them that all this stuff is current. And the reality is it's a lengthy process. And the other reality is not everybody who shows up is a good person who's going to tell you all of the truth. And so the reality is you can't turn yourselves into credentialers on the scene, right? We can't be having um, EMS on the scene trying to make a decision as to whether or not this person really is a doctor or whether or not this badge that they have, this ID badge that they have from their hospital, you know, might have expired a year ago or uh, whether or not they hold a license in this state um, or whether or not they, you know, are currently under investigation by the medical board and are restricted from practicing medicine. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that that unfortunately can go on. And, and EMS can't really be in the position of doing this. Um, and, and I will be honest with you, almost every, I don't know of a state, and it may be out there because I'm not going to claim to know all 50 state laws, but I don't believe there's any state out there where somebody just says, hey, I'm a doctor and here's an ID, and I get to commandeer your ambulance, essentially, because I say that I'm willing to go in with you. Right. There's there's going to be some interplay. And I, and I think it's really, really important um, for you to as a paramedic to make sure you know your protocols in this regard, because I got to be honest with you guys. Docs are not gods and docs are certainly not even paragods. OK, um, some of them may wear 9-11 pants, but they're uh, 511 pants, but they're not uh, they're not paragods. And unless you really, really know the equipment on the scene they're probably not all that good for you. Um, because again, I, I have my way of doing things. I, I'm sure you guys do too, right? You got your stuff in the back of your truck. You know exactly what you want to do. And the, the more dire the situation, the better it is if I'm in my comfort zone, right? I, I, am, I am far more um, useful as a physician if I've got all of the toys and all of the drugs and all the things that I'm used to if something is going to go sideways. And to be honest, you know, I can I can be in, in Lexington, North Carolina, Brad, and, I, I, you know, I used to work up there. I, I know the crews. They would know me, and mm -hmm. I might be able to help, but am I going to have the drugs I want 
am I going to have a, you know, I, I, I've moved, shudder the thought, but I've moved to video laryngoscopy for the most part. Um, I haven't done a DL primary in probably three years. Am I going to have the video laryngoscope that I'm used to dealing with? Am I, am, am I going to have to drop back to DL? Am I going to have a paralytic? Cause not every, not every EMS uh, crew has one. And I got to be honest with you, I'm not trying to, I mean, that, that could be a whole nother podcast, but I'm not trying an intubation without a paralytic if it's RSI. Um, I, I mean, there's all these things. And so really don't make the assumption that a doctor is good for you on the scene. Um, know your, know your protocol. Well, let's go to the other side. You mentioned a lot about scene transport or see on scene, uh, access let's go to the other part that you're talking about and talk about intra-facility transfers because you know it's it's interesting everybody when they're looking at the ems profession thinks about you know working on the side of the road and the cliffs or or people's houses and stuff like that but a lot of our calls are those intra-facility transfers let's let's talk about the physicians that are involved with that process maybe both from the uh the sending and the receiving facilities and how those physicians interact with the transport crews <laughs> this one is is a little bit more fraught with peril here so there is a major air transport company and who literally trains their flight medics that they, the flight medics, are the experts of the airway and that they are more experienced in airway than most of the physicians who are transporting patients out. And I have seen in more than one case, both personally and in my legal work, um, cases where paramedics believe this to be true. And so in one scenario, a patient, a, a very large patient was fairly injured. Um, rural hospital, the ER doc tells the flight crew, look, you shouldn't need to intubate him. His airway is stable. His, you know, we're sending him there because he's got this, we're sending him out because he's got this horribly fractured shoulder. Um, and we don't have ortho. We don't have the ortho here to handle this, and we're sending him by by flight because it, it's literally going to be a, a four hour transport by ground. Um, you know, here's all the paperwork. Here's the accepting physician. If you guys feel the need to intubate him, and this is actually documented in the nurse's documentation, and this is documented, um, and and it's agreed to in depositions by the paramedic. Um, says you know, hey, if you got it, if you're going to intubate him. Um, let us know, but we really don't think you're going to have to, uh, the next thing, um, that the, the nurse and the physician here is the code blue being activated from the room and they go in there and not only have, has the, uh, paramedic, um, managed to goose the airway, um, but they fail to recognize it until the patient codes and bad things ensue. Um, and the patient unfortunately uh, dies. And when the case comes out, the paramedic pulls out the training materials that he was given by a major flight company. It says, it says here that I am more experienced than anyone at these small hospitals that I come into. Um, and so the airway was mine, so I ignored what the physician said about the airway. 
Now, as it turns out, that paramedic had intubated a grand total of one person in the past two weeks, or uh, sorry, the past two years. And the um, the physician was like myself. I, I actually pulled about two shifts a month at a critical access hospital, but was an ER doc at a major trauma center, uh, uh, stayed away. Um, that was incredibly experienced in in airway management. Not only that, but there was an anesthesiologist in house who could have done it, um, and you know, and everything kind of went sideways. I've had the experience uh, myself of sending a patient out uh, from a small hospital and saying, "Look, I'm sending this patient out. Here's the plan. Right? They're going to this PICU. Here's what we want to have happen. Here's what needs to happen." Um, We've called you because of this, um, but the doc, uh, the receiving doc does not want to buy, in this case, it was a, an acidotic patient. Um, both me and the receiving PICU doc have talked about it. We do not want to bicarb drip initiate, so please don't. What did the crew do the minute they got in the helicopter? Up goes the bicarb drip. The answer was, when I called the medical writer as well, my crews just thought you were uh, some family practice doc working in a rural hospital. Sorry about that. I said, I made it pretty clear to the flight crew that the PICU doc who was receiving, who's actually the reason that the complaint got made, and I had discussed this very thing and did not want this to have ha to have this happen. And, and the flight crew said, no, it's our patient. And during the during the transport, it's uh it's our call as to what we do. We are medical providers and we are part of the care team and we've made the decision to change the plan. And so I think that there is a there's a dynamic push pull because I've also been a flight physician and I've seen you know EM uh, I've seen people scatter, right? We show up, we land, we we get, you know, we walk into a small ER and they are like the patient's in room 2 and you go in there there's this horribly sick, horribly injured patient and you can't find a nurse yet alone a physician to tell you what the heck has happened and you're stuck trying to put it together so i think there's there's both sides of the line uh, but i think we have to be very very careful in assuming that every doc that you're going to interact with is not experienced and is not uh capable of coming up with a plan uh, for their patient, or that it's, you know, is it the physician, is it the paramedic's role to change the plan during the transport? What do you guys think? I mean, is that, if you all feel that uh, a bicarb drip is needed and it's needed according to your protocol, do you do it when when you're told that the, the docs on both ends don't want it? Well, I think that brings up a, a especially one of the questions that I have, and I, I'm going to get Bradley's input here as well, because now that we're talking intrafacility transfers, you know, we have those orders that are coming between the sending and receiving physicians, um, in addition to what our protocol state. Now, obviously, if our patient is is in one condition, and, you know, we're just going to say we, we depart with patient A, and they present the same way, leaving the sending facility all the way through transport to the receiving facility, then yeah, you know, I, I personally feel that if that valid care plan is there and it's been explained to me, I mean, obviously if we leave and there's, you all have had the conversation, no by car, but that really didn't get uh, uh, passed over, which happens on some cases, uh, then, then obviously they don't know, but as long as it's 
been discussed and I think it should. Now, if your patient changes their presentation, then obviously we have to take that information and that care plan may have to change, you know, depending on that updated patient condition. Now, that would be where I would probably have the sending and receiving uh, physicians numbers readily available and say, okay, I have this patient and they're deteriorating. And, uh, you know, this is what I see. Uh, you know, I, th I think this, and, and you can get those online. Now, the question is, does that deviate enough from what uh, legal authorities that we have within our own protocol to say, well, we're supposed to call our physician, but uh, the receiving hospital is usually who we contact. And it's, if we already have that contact there, then make that contact. So Bradley, what do you think? I'm going to step out here and probably say something that's going to either make everybody happy or really tick everybody off. Protocols are written for the lowest common denominator and should not be implemented without common sense and good clinical judgment. Uh, if, if the sending physician and receiving physician say, hey, don't do something that is well within our protocol, and they tell me, hey, you know, the reason this patient doesn't need X, Y, and Z, in this case, uh, you know, bicarb drip, uh, is because, you know, we've, we've done the blood work, we've done this, uh, even though the patient condition looks like it fits this protocol, now I have the, the clinical information as to why the physician does not want something done, then I should probably go with what the physician says and document that, especially if they're the sending or receiving physician or both of them, and put that in my, my report because now I have deviated from what my protocol says, but it was in the best interest of the patient. Uh, and again, protocols are written for that lowest common denominator of, you know, when somebody says, you know, I really don't know what to do. They've got a clinical guideline to go by. Well, and I think this is a good point to state that, you know, this was, this would, to me would invite a conversation in what is sounding like a stable environment, obviously, we become more unstable when we lose the additional crews of the hospital. This would be a good time to state, okay, so you're telling me on this patient, patient A, if nothing happens, no bicard drip. If I start to see deviations in that, which we know may, may show on EKG changes or patient presentation changes, what should my alternate treatment paths be in that case and that would be the question that i would have and and so i'd be like dr mel you're the sending physician i know you and and bradley dean the 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 pick you doc at receiving hospital have had this conversation i'm looking for my 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 guidelines or my guardrails on this to say okay if i'm driving down the middle of the road no bicarb we're good However, if I start to deviate right or left, where can I go? And I agree with that. Um, but I think it goes back to, I mean, what, what, I think it really goes back to an attitude and training. Um, because I think that there really is, in some cases, there are transport, uh, especially, I think I find this more with critical care transport paramedics um, and with some critical care transport nurses and some I'm not, I don't get me wrong. I'm not saying all. And before you guys get a bunch of angry, you know, comments going into the, into the feed on this protocol, uh, in the feed on this podcast, I'm not saying all, but I can tell you, I've seen the literal printed training materials <laughs> that state you are 
better at the airway than the doc. And, and I think that you get into a little bit, you know, the same as we were talking about on the scene, what can this physician do uh, for you? I think when you're going into a hospital with an attitude and being trained that you are better equipped and better able to handle this patient than the sending physician. And you're basing that on the size of the hospital. You're not doing the best thing for your patient. And I think one of the things that I that I can tell you that I've done as a flight physician. So I used to fly as an attending with Cleveland Metro Life Flight. And I was a fixed wing medic way back in the day. Um, but I think what this really boils down to is, is the reason that I like the Pennsylvania protocol so much. And that is if you are a flight or a ground critical care paramedic, to me, every time somebody comes into one of my shops, I transported to, uh, kids out last night. I don't let my nurses do the handoff, not because I don't trust my nurses, they're fantastic, but because I'm trying to establish with the flight crew that I know what I'm doing, right? So I'm the one who's going to give the report. I'm the one who's going to walk in and say, hey, listen, you know what? This kid came in, they were in status epilepticus, they had X, Y, and Z going on. Here's the access that we got. Here's how they looked when they got here. Here's what we did, and here's where we are. And you've been, you're, you're clear to go to this facility and hand off to this doc. Um, do you have any questions? Is there anything else you want us to do before we, trans, before we hand this patient off to you? It, all right, and then I'll usually turn around and then say, okay, look, I'm going to go back to work. But if you are going to do any, if you are contemplating doing any procedure in the aircraft, let us know and do it here by the light of day. Either we can assist you. You can do it yourself if you feel like you need to do it. But please, you know, use our stuff. We got a brightly lit room here. You're not bouncing. Whatever you're going to do, please do it where it's, it's you know, 72 degrees and, and well lit and, and not loud and bouncing. Um, and, and the reason I do that, again, is not to sit there and say that my nurses can't give that report, but it's to establish with the flight crew that, hey, you know, this may be a small hospital, um, but I've done this before. You know? Well, and a lot of that goes back to, and I, I think you bring up the point about the trading materials uh, or at least the materials they're presented. You know, I have to know that not, not every situation is the same. My, my specific thing, the one that I was willing to take to the grave a lot of times is pediatric febrile children um, or febrile seizures. Uh, you know, the uh, most of the protocols that I worked under said one of the first things you do is start an IV. And our children's hospital that we have in our area absolutely despise putting IVs in, in febrile children for a couple of reasons. One, you make their condition worse. Two, you can cool them off and uh, even quicker. And so I would continually take them in without an IV. And they're like, why did you not bring them in with an IV? I'm like, because one, you all don't like it. And two, I know what it does to the kid. And that, you know, that's where we get into some common sense and to, and to take that. You have that conversation with the, the physician. It's like, hey, great. You know, this is what you want to do. And that's why I said I'd ask the question, you know, what what are my guidelines where my, my guardrails, uh, you know, because I, again, I only have so much. You've you've all have x-rays and CT and, and MRIs and labs, stat labs that are phenomenal. And I don't have all that in the field. So uh, is that EKG change or the mental status change associated with what I think that 
that increased uh, acid level that I would normally uh, uh, give bicarb for, or is it because of something else that I can't test for while I'm in the air or in the ground? So, so as you know, I think we've talked a lot about the physicians uh, over nearly the last hour and, and uh, thanks uh, to, to Dr. Mel, I'm going to give you an opportunity here uh, to kind of uh, wrap up uh, your thoughts. Uh, so I think one of the things uh, for me, uh, I'm going to go ahead and take the the intro, introductory close up here is, you know, just because a physician is there, don't dismiss them. Don't automatically accept them. Find out what your situation is. Have the conversation with who you need to have the conversation and bring them into the situation, how they need to be brought in if they do at all. Um, physicians can be great, just like our EMS professionals. And, and really, when we take a look at it, it's all about teamwork. So, Dr. Mel, your last thoughts about the topic today of having the physician on the ground. So I would I would give you two. I would have two wrap ups for you. The first is know your protocol in this regard. It, when you're talking about a doctor on the scene, know your protocol. And if it's written very, very specifically, it's written that way for a reason. Um, it is to be a barrier to entry because I, as a medical, as an EMS medical director, I don't want my crews out on the street uh, trying to become medical staff offices and trying to credential the physician who's standing in front of them. And so, you know, don't assume um, that your state law says that any doctor who says they're going to come in with you gets, gets carte blanche. Because I think once you start to really look at what your protocols are in this situation, many of you guys will find that it's not what you think it is. As far as the once you do start to work with a physician, whether it's on the scene or whether it is in interfacility transport, I would beg the physicians who might be listening to this or the advanced practice providers who might be listening to this, um, keep in mind that how you present yourself and how you present your patient to your flight crew or your ground transport crew is going to go a long way towards establishing their trust in you and your trust in them. Um, but I would also uh, caution by the same token, the ground or air EMS teams to not always assume that just because a physician is sitting in a small hospital means that they are not well-trained, uh, that they're not well-experienced because uh, there are plenty of board-certified emergency physicians who work at very, very small hospitals and have tons of experience in things. Um, and so I would judge each interaction by how they present themselves. If they're coming to you and they're giving you a handoff and if they're really explaining all of these things to you, that's probably not the person that people are referring to when they say you've got more experience than them. Um, you know, that, that's probably the person that has a, a fair amount of experience and really knows what they are doing. And, and so you gotta kind of take that into account. You kind of have to take um, the flavor. You can't walk in with the assumption that you are uh, better at everything than 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 this house than this small town uh, rural hospitals staff because you're going to do your patient a disservice you're going to do yourself a disservice because that's somebody that you may be able to learn something from so those would be my two wrap ups know your protocols and judge uh, don't 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 go in with prejudgments go in with how how the team interacts. Excellent. Bradley Dean, any last thoughts? I would just say, you know, make a reasonable effort to establish the uh, credentials um, 
an identity of the person and make sure that your agency and your medical director have given you guidance prior to this happening because like Dr. Mel said, we don't need to be uh, credentialing personnel on scene uh, who we have no idea who they are. All right. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Mel, for joining us uh, today. And then as always, Bradley Dean is uh, my co-host on here. We're doing uh, great things. Glad to be back doing this stuff again. So you will see us here in the near future. But uh, in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and uh, subscribe, rate, and assess our podcast on the GEMS podcast. You can go to GEMS.com or find them on the EMS Today podcast on all of the social media platforms. Uh, we will be coming up soon uh, to a couple of different conferences. As Bradley mentioned, we'll be over uh, his way uh, at the beginning of the month. This will already be up. You'll see a couple of those episodes coming up. And then in July will be in Middle Tennessee. So if you're interested in having the EMS Handoff podcast come to your conference, uh, feel free to reach out. But until next week, remember the value of your EMS handoff.